Let's start the show by talking about my sponsor, Paloma Verde, and their new website, PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out for all of your CBD needs. They've got the gummies, tinctures, the salves. So if you're needing anything to maybe chill you out, something to help you get mellowed out, something for your joint pain and stiffness, go over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and give them a check out. Carlos and Vanessa are awesome people. They run a great company. And if you enter the promo code FACTS at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. Plus, any order over $75, you get free shipping. So, I don't know what you're waiting for. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out. Let's start the show. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This podcast. I am trying to give up and not not sell drugs, but uh, I've, I've got I've got a story about where I learned to say that to people. If you want me to start with that, <laughs> yes, let's just let's start with that. Hey, yeah, everybody Jeff. who's listening to the podcast, I got Rimzo Martinez of I don't know. Rimzo does at least half a dozen shows, if not more, at this point. Uh, Rimzo, introduce yourself, and then let's hear the why I should quit my job and sell drugs. You see, this is this is why, like, I, I always tell people who are getting in the podcast, the best podcast will always be the ones that happen before you hit the record button. Justin was talking about his life as, you know, a, a human trafficker by day and, uh, you know, 7-Eleven clerk by night or something. And, you know, he's tired. He's working. He's hustling. He's trying to feed his 17 children and his two baby mamas. Those bitches got to get fed, right? So... You know, I, I told him, I just looked him dead in the eyes. He looks like a child, really. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen him before, but he had like those glowing diamond eyes. And I just felt to him, it's like, tell him what you wish you could tell yourself. And I looked at him and I said, Justin, you should give up and sell drugs. Uh, much like two old men said to me. So this part's a real story. Uh, Justin's actually an African-American man in his 50s. But uh, three years ago, you know, in the before times, I got to do the spirit fingers, the, the before times. Uh, I was not doing great. And I took a job in something called direct marketing, which is a scam because uh, all you're doing is you're selling uh, shit to people. But you see, it's honorable to go to someone's house and try and sell it to them. I wasn't doing that. I was selling it to people who were working like at the cash register, like Cold Stones, uh, mall cops. I was selling it to strippers and McDonald's parking lots and, you know, homeless people in back alleys of dc and baltimore and i'm in this uh suburb where people are known to die uh in maryland so i'm in this parking lot for like this used chevy dealership between like a mcdonald's and this place which i think was a money laundering garage because i didn't really see any vehicles getting worked on and um you know my quota i had failed every day i had to sell like 11 bags of like lead tainted chinese makeup and that shit don't sell itself you gotta just you know get all your nose during the day because somebody will be dumb enough to give you 20 dollars plus tax for it so i go up to these two old men who are like about to start fighting each other i know it because they're loud and one guy has a slipper in his hand and you're probably wondering where did he get the slipper he took it off his foot and he was about to hit the other man so i walk over and i say hey fellas i'm wearing a suit and tie and i'm the only white guy in his name neighborhood so um i'm like hey fellas you want to buy some some makeup for the ladies and the guy looks at me he's like what lady do you think is coming home of this face and no that's not a racist stereotype that guy was also white so there were two white people there be better and um you know his friend grabs one of the bags for me and they start going through it making fun of everything they're like i can get this at walmart for 15 cents and they just start like insulting me he's like you're going around trying to sell people this shit what the fuck you should give up and sell drugs. And four days later, I quit. Not to sell drugs. I was just drinking a lot. And a month later, I got a job. But uh, the, the lesson of the story is life gets better. Obviously, you live in uh, Wisconsin now, right? It's peaceful. I'm the rudest person in this state, and I think I'm rather nice. That's, I, I don't doubt that a bit. They're like Canadians, but with more guns and potential road rage. <laughs> I can't say anything other than Indiana. It's not like we're doing a whole lot better here. You've got seven people in the entire state. <laughs> One of them is Chris Spangle, and sometimes he's like two people, depending on whether he gets the orange theory. 
Okay. This, if this is like a, a, a no-fly zone, say so. But what's it like working for Chris? Because I've had like some interaction with him between lines of delivery stuff and then just between like and uh, general like contact type stuff. And sometimes he seems okay. And sometimes I just want to hold the pillow over my own head. Like, well, how, how is it working with Chris? Uh, Chris has truly been, been a friend for, for a long time now, but over the last couple of years, really when I worked at the Washington times, um, you know, he really became a person I could rely on for certain things. And, you know, as, as the program director, at the We Are Libertarians Network. I can tell you, I tried to join other podcast networks, tried to team up with other people in the past. And usually it doesn't work for one of two reasons. One is because you have a good leader, but you have shitty people. And then the other one is that you have a shitty leader and bad people. Chris is one of the few people in the liberty movement who actually does what he says he's going to do. And because he's aligned a lot of his career with his passions, he's kind of stepped off as like, you know, the, 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 the meme guy as he was in the early We Are Libertarians days. And now he's really not only coming to his own, but he's become a mentor and a source of knowledge and resources for other people like myself. You know, I, I took a, about a year and a half off from um, from podcasting. I host this show called The Remster Republic, and then it came back for about um, 50 or so episodes in, uh, in 2018 is the Remso Martinez experience. And ironically, the Remso Martinez experience did really well, except the problem was time, passion, and really just having a support network. Because I want to tell people that I could do everything by myself and I've just got so much infinite energy and time. But the truth is, is that sometimes it's okay to, you know, ask for somebody to give you advice or, you know, to share resources or something. So, um, you know, I, I ended that at a point where a lot of people were like, why are you ending it? And I was just like, because I don't, I don't really think I'm, I'm in there. So I, I went and filmed the TV series with my brother. Uh, we did three seasons of that. Our show, The Witching Hour, actually ends uh, this year. We're in the mid-season break right now. But uh, towards the end of season two, right before season three, I was talking with my brother, Ryan, who's the producer and director for our show. I told him, you know, I, I really like TV, but I kind of miss podcasting. There was something just a little bit more less scripted. And, and by script, I'm not saying that our documentary series is scripted. I'm just saying that you've got so much you have to do and so much time goes into like, you know, laying out the, um, the, the cut scenes and everything else. Like there's so much work that goes into an hour long episode. It got to the point where it's like, all this feels like we're just going in steps and I have to do something that's kind of cookie cutter. And I got to the point where it's like, yeah, I, I just miss the free flow of just talking to people. And um, he was like, you know, maybe you should get back into podcasting. And if you don't want to do everything by yourself, I'm sure that, you know, I see Chris Spangle is growing. I mean, Brian Nichols was on the show, was on the program for about a year at that point. So I, I looked at my brother. I'm like, Spangle's not going to, um, you know, want me on there. I've, I've, I've done that stuff. I'm not, you know, I'm not a hot commodity anymore as if I ever was. And I shit you not. A day fucking later, I'm at my desk at the Washington Times it's around 8 p.m. So it's just me, the ghost and the homeless person outside. And as I'm getting ready to wrap up for the night, I, uh, I get a text from Chris and he's like, Remzo, uh, I hope you're good. I'm expanding the network. And I don't know if you're doing a podcast anymore or not, but, you know, if you wanted to move and be part of the We Are Libertarians network, we could give you the support and resources and, you know, team that you need to be awesome and help us be awesome. And I, I called him back immediately. You know, I said, Chris, I have, I have um, two demands. One, I'm going to start a new show from scratch. That was on the run. Um, and the second one was, I want full creative control over my show. And that was the only time we ever negotiated. And since then, uh, we do two episodes a week. Uh, I bug Chris on almost a, a nearly daily basis, whether it's for show stuff or life stuff, because 
you know, it's not very often you have a good leader. And what's great about We Are Libertarians is that we also just have great people. So it's been one of those situations where it's like he started off literally as a hobby podcaster talking about random third party politics. And now he's a network director for shows that are bringing in tens to hundreds of thousands of downloads across the month dealing with sales and politics and life stuff and comedy and education. And it's uh, it's it's become what it is. So I think the one criticism that. Uh, people throw at Chris, which is accurate, but without context is misunderstood is the fact that they think he gets very melodramatic and they think sometimes, you know, he, he sounds a bit emotional and, and it's true. He is because he's a person who genuinely wears his heart on his sleeve. And I'm not saying that because he's a big softy, but I'm saying that because, you know, he's a person who's already done this for almost two decades. And when, you know, he sees people come on and talk about this shit, like it just happened yesterday, who, who could blame him for, you know, for being passionate and being a little sardonic about it. I think that just shows a sign of maturity and that shows a, you know, something that comes with just having been in the arena for so long. So, you know, wh whether people love him or hate him or not, uh, Chris Spangle has made libertarianism in the United States specifically less retarded, which I can't say about a lot of people because there are a lot of retarded libertarians. Spend 10 minutes on Twitter and you'll find most of them. <laughs> Spend two minutes on Facebook and they'll find you. <clears throat> let's let's talk about social media so um, because there are a whole lot of different uh smaller platforms kind of cropping up we've got me we the uh short-lived parlor experience uh has that come back what's going on with that not that you ask you, you ask me like I know these days. Not, I don't I don't mean like I had somebody fucking call me two weeks ago and they're like Rebzo, Rebzo, because it's been so long. Rebzo, I can't get into my account. Can you help me? And I'm like, Ooh, that sucks. Nope. Sorry. <laughs> Please, man. I'm like, you're assuming I can still help you. When I left in December, I didn't just leave like and and look back dramatically and think i can still be a resource i left and kicked the door down while i was out i took my money signed my legally binding death warrant and i was gone uh, you know so contact to... customer support like a regular person motherfucker you know they got taken down and then they came back and then it just kind of disappeared. So, you know, I did go, I actually did go on the other day because I'm a mask assist. I've got 28,000 people on there, probably 400 of which are actually human beings. And um, what was, what, what I have seen is that it's, as it's tried to become more professional, it has eliminated the things that made it a competitive uh, platform. And really people think, oh, it was the free speech that made it competitive. No. It, it was the lack of company interference and the ability to grow. It was the fact that one, you could see everybody that has witnessed your post and it's public. So people can really see whether something's popular that, and it didn't have priority algorithms based off the media uh, that you uploaded, whether it was text video, a JPEG image or something like that, it was all treated equally. So it was one of those opportunities where it's like the, the content that is popular will be popular because the people have made it popular not because the company has artificially changed the playing field to make some content matter more than others. And as I see this, it's like, you know, all they had to do was just get really good at those things. And they could have gone ahead and taken out the things that were an issue. Like the fact that the app crashed every two days or the fact that the web team crashed every three days, or the fact that the messenger app crashed every three days. So, you know, I, I wish them luck. Um, you know, Candace Owens, I don't know if I can legally say, it. I think it's funny that her husband now owns it because she tried to sue the company last year. But, you know, best of luck to them, really. I hope whatever Taiwanese sweatshop and Russian server farm they're using doesn't crash like it did in America. <laughs> so that's one of them. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, there's a whole bunch of others cropping up. So, you know, we've got MeWe. Nomad Network, Locals, uh, shoot, Dan Spots has his own thing, uh, Anti-News Live. Uh, like, there's a bunch of different platforms. What do you think the future is for these alternative platforms? And 
like, what do you think, what do you think ends up being the long-term thing with Twitter, Facebook, YouTube? Uh, Cause you know, you've got BitChute, Odyssey, different competitors for, for YouTube. Uh, how do you see the whole thing kind of working itself out over the next, who knows how long? Oh, that, that, that's a great question. So I'm going to split it in two. Um, when it comes into video platforms, I don't treat those as social media. I treat those as search engines. Um, you know, Google's the number one search engine in the world. Uh, YouTube is the second, not simply because it's owned by Alphabet, which owns Google, but it's just because how it works. So it's a farm specifically for video. When it comes to social media, you know, with everything that's popped up, everyone gets the premise. The problem is familiarity. Um, you know, when, when you become so familiar with something, you tend to even avoid decent products when you could go to where you're comfortable. Now, people look at MySpace and they're like, oh, look, at one point they were talking about regulating MySpace and MySpace was the place. But the problem with MySpace and why, you know, when people try and compare it to Facebook, it doesn't make sense is the fact that one, MySpace never went public. When MySpace went public, it brought a lot of um, foreign financial influence into it. So it no longer just became something as popular in the United States or even just some countries. It became a, a global, you know, tour de force, so to speak. Um, look at the fact that they went ahead and bought Instagram, you know, like five, six years ago. Uh, Instagram was failing and Instagram was bankrupt. Uh, you know, Snapchat didn't sell. Snapchat went bankrupt around the same time, but Instagram sold. And when you look at social media trends the last two years, Facebook, in terms of new accounts and the number of closed accounts on a daily basis, dropped significantly. But you had a large uh, number of people that went and started Instagram accounts for the first time and reactivated Instagram accounts. So Instagram was like one of the biggest winners of uh, 2020. Um, you know, Twitter as well, except the problem with Twitter is there's so many bots. They're saying that there will be more fake accounts on Twitter. I'm sorry, there will be more accounts on Twitter than there will be humans on earth within less than half a decade. So, I mean, you can't even really determine whether or not most of those accounts are humans. So when, when I look at social media, uh, I'm going to say yes, I'm going to say no to this idea that you're going to have stronger, more prevalent platforms come up. I just don't think they won't be owned by Facebook. I think Facebook is looking at PayPal. You know, PayPal went ahead and bought Venmo and PayPal is buying up all these other smaller um, money transferring companies and stuff like that, because they were just like, why buy it and you know, push it out of business when we could just buy it and let it do its thing as long as we can collect, you know, not only additional um, profit, but also just more information about consumer trends. So I think that, you know, if something's going to happen, it's not going to be because it chose to be a competitor of Facebook. I think it's going to be because Facebook is saying, listen, we're losing, ac we're losing people. And when we lose people, we're losing access to the information and customers for the people that are buying ads. So like, you know, when they bought WhatsApp, you know, you, you, you can't compete with them, just buy them. I think if um, Facebook if, is looking at anything else, it's going to be less about buying up competing companies. It's going to be making more niche oriented platforms that integrate with each other, much like how Messenger, WhatsApp, Facebook, and Instagram, they all integrate with each other in different ways. So I see them making, you know, smaller micro platforms that integrate with each other, where you also don't have to have any of the other accounts to get the full experience. It'll just be optional. So, you know, I see us getting into a, a technological monopoly, not through regulation, but through consumer choice. And uh, I, I think that's great uh, from a business aspect um, because it's going to give you a lot of different ways to access people where they are uh, from a, you know, social aspect. I, you know, I'm, I'm not one of those libertarians that says, well, it's a private company. So if they want to have their employees fight each other, death, let them No, I, I I'm afraid of any uh, heavy concentration of power and influence anywhere. So I'm not going to say that it's any better. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, that is an interesting take on it uh, as well. I, I think Pornhub will actually go ahead and create a platform that can compete openly with Twitter. I think if anyone's going to do it, it would be them. Okay. Elaborate on that. Like, 
So 2018, um, you had a large purge of people on many of, um, you know, many of the internet space, so to speak, and Twitter was one of them. And what you had a lot of them do was they actually started uploading their videos to Pornhub. So you had like old man fucks Federal Reserve. It was actually a Ron Paul speech and people watched it and they didn't just watch it because they wanted to see it because they thought it was porn. They watched it. Then they're like, oh, this is porn. Then they're like, wait, what's this guy saying? And it got to the point where it's like they, they have a model where because of all the the probes into like, you know, human trafficking and underage porn and stuff like that, they've become a lot stricter about their verification methods, which I think is incredibly important. So not only can you verify your account, but you have access to a giant global audience and you basically have, you know, whether you agree with it or not, unfettered, uncensored free speech. Because how is a platform that shows all types of like, you know, step-sibling porn going to disagree with somebody talking about the reason why we left Afghanistan? That's that's fucking incredible. Wow. Uh, Man, I never would have, I never would have considered that. I guess I don't watch. If you're on Pornhub later and your wife is like, "What are you doing?" and you say research, you can't fucking blame me for that. Um, you are you are totally the the go to for why <laughs> I'm getting in trouble for being on Pornhub. For like every every time from now on, if she catches me, it's just like it's Rimzo's fault. He talked me into this. This is it's research. I'm trying to stay ahead of the times. I'm trying to expand this uh, doing podcast stuff for people and and uh, my little my little corner of the libertarian world and the empire I'm trying to build. And it's like, and I've got to stay at least one step ahead of the game. So this is where it is. It's like, do you want to feed our children? Cause if you do, you're going to have to let me watch a lot of Pornhub to understand how this works. Oh, that's, that's never really been my thing, but and you know, I can make it my thing. I, I will dedicate myself to the, to, to further the the calls. I'm I'm a Liberty University grad. It's not my thing either. But when that happened, I started paying attention because I'm like, one, how does a company like this stay in business? And two, how does it handle all the outside pressure? from not only other interest groups, such as people trying to shut it down because of, you know, whether it's anti-porn or all the other stuff, which is very legitimate. They had a giant issue. But the fact that they survived and they make money and the people on there are able to make money, you have to strip it of the context of the fact that, yeah, it's a porn site, but what is it really? It's probably the number one, it's probably the number, I don't know how many people visit it, but I think it's like the number two video site in the world. So imagine if somebody took that model and just reapplied it because you've had, so you've had other video platforms that were competitors. You had DTube, which was built on the steam at blockchain, which fucking sucks. You have a huge tube, which was created by Utah gun exchange, which was a um, basically a clone of Facebook, which I personally believe functioned better in many ways, except their problem was their branding. Um, it didn't make sense. They only targeted people within the gun community. And when you do that, you're going to get everyone you want, no one else. Um, I like Odyssey a lot. I'm, I'm learning more about Odyssey. I, I don't like, I, you know, th- th- this might make some libertarians, you know, bleed out their ass. But like, I don't like blockchain just for the sake of calling something blockchain. Um, you know, you had minds.com, which is a, another social media platform. I'm on minds. I post stuff there regularly. Minds is one of the first alternative platforms I found, except my problem with minds is that, you know, once something goes on a blockchain, whether you delete it or not, it's still visible to somebody somehow. So imagine you go ahead and you post a lot of just explicit content that is unlawful to also post, whether you delete it or not, it's on there forever. And the company doesn't even necessarily have control over it. So it's one of the situations where your whole revenue model, and this is why uh, Minds has never been profitable, is, is based off the good intention of activist customers. And, you know, an activist customer base is not strong or sustainable enough for really anybody. Um, you look at Tom's, for example, and, you know, Tom's is a, 
a social entrepreneurial company where it comes to the story and how they say they're not in it for the profit. But the thing is, if they weren't in it for the profit, their shitty shoes wouldn't be selling for an 80% markup. It's also just very clever marketing because how could you go ahead and go against, you know, a, a, an old African grandma who's making your moccasins? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a hustle, but you got to respect the hustle. So it's like, how do we look at these things and take away the emotion, take away what we assume it is, and just look at the way it works? Parler never succeeded because it was just a free speech platform. Parler succeeded because popular content was being boosted by a popular demand of users and the company stayed out of the way of that. So when you remove that from the system, it could be as free speech as you want. And that's what these others are. But at the end of the day, the technical features of it, which made it better are no longer there. So it's not worth it. Um, You know, I, I have, I've built platforms for clients and all these alternative media platforms and, I can tell you it's all been it's all been an abysmal failure. And you see the same people going on there and they immediately have followings. Uh, I, I can't go into detail, but I can tell you that a few companies that really pegged themselves it's like, oh, we're this free speech alternative, we're the conservative Twitter, we're the conservative this. A lot of those people that went on there and gained massive followings uh, did so artificially. It's not, it, it, they weren't real. There were not that many, that, there were not that many people on the platform that were signing up and there were not that many people liking their accounts. It was artificially not. That, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, having done sales and, and marketing type stuff, like that, that doesn't necessarily surprise me. I mean, it, it would make sense that a social media company or anything like that is going to use similar sales tactics to, uh, to inflate stuff and make stuff. I, I had, uh, you know, I had, I had a customer one time build an account. It was a celebrity. If I told you there, I can tell you who they were offline, but I can't for legal reasons because I don't want to deal with people um, go into it now. But I had, I had a person one time say, huh, this is so strange. As soon as I got my blue check mark on Twitter, I had uh, half a million people. Why is it? I don't have that many people here. And I'm like, it's because you haven't done anything. You haven't told anyone, like, what are you expecting? And it was one of those moments where I'm like, oh, he's asking me to m- mess with some stuff. I'm, I'm sorry. We don't do that. Yeah, You're and supposed then, to like, be the fixer, Remzo. That's your, yeah, that's your and, then, and then a day later, uh, he stopped posting anything. And then two days after that, here's what was funny. Um, and you see the same formula over and over again. His Twitter account gets suspended temporarily. So what he says is that he's been banned, which a a temporary suspension and a banning are two different things, but people understand the words they're using. Uh, Comes over to Parler, posts a ton of shit, extremely active. At the same time, they're going on Fox and they're going on all these radio shows and they're everywhere and people are talking about them everywhere. And the moment that their account gets reinstated, they get triple the new followers they're everywhere um now they've got a sponsorship deal and a book deal about how hard their life was how it was just like the holocaust or something and then they completely abandoned the old account i gotta tell you like my my 72 hour twitter ban was 100 percent like the holocaust uh, I, I, sure. I can imagine i'm you look emaciated sure. <laughs> i'm not sure how i survived and it was just all furnaces. That's typically how it is. I, I mean, really, the best day in the conservative's life is when they get a Twitter suspension. There are people who actively, intentionally try and get suspended because they know the windfall that comes from it. And you could literally have done something actually terrible and actually deserved the suspension. And the same people will still like completely ignore that. And they will be your ride or die. Like, you know, you will be the, the, the rock to somebody, just Jason Statham. Like you are just there with them irregardless. And it's just like, you know, um, we, we create it. Like I don't actually hate Jack Dorsey. Um, you know, I, I just I, I just saw Jack Dorsey as a competitor. He's a human being. I'm like Mark Zuckerberg, who's a lizard person. But that's neither here nor there. Like it just came down to the fact that I, I really begin to see this. And it's like the consumers are worse than the companies. 
when people understand how much stuff has probably been brought up to Facebook or Twitter or Google that are just completely insane that customers wanted, but the companies were like, yeah, we can't do that. It, it would, it would shock you. And I, you know, I've been privy to a lot of those conversations where it's like, yeah, even your most jackbooted commie sitting behind a moderator desk at Twitter is nowhere near as bad as your most liberal vocal, like anti-free speech SJW. Like that's just the reality behind it. Like, you know, the, the consumers are way more demanding and, you know, willingly more restrictive than, than the companies themselves. I mean, I'm sure you've seen or heard some of the interviews with like some of the, some of the Facebook censors, like the ones who go through all the content and like, they talk about some of the just horrid shit that they like see nonstop, like the stuff that, you know, the stuff that doesn't that doesn't even break through because because it Facebook so. Facebook is not a a, a, a town square right. like it's not it's it's a fucking place for businesses to sell you their shit I mean that that's why the product is free because you're the product and um, you know people pe- pe- people a lot you know I'm not mad at it like pe- a lot of people got really. Uh, open up to what was really gone, going on of social media uh, prior to that documentary. Um, I f- don't remember what it's called. Social Network. No, that was the Facebook movie. Yeah. Uh, the Social Dilemma. The Social yeah, yeah. Dilemma was a documentary that came out last year, ironically, right before the 2020 election. And, like, you know, I'm glad it did because, um, you know, the documentary was good. The problem with the documentary is when they get to the end and all the people that were correctly citing the problems were asked, what do you do? And all those people who were all former employees of those companies are coming out with like the most like Orwellian restrictive stuff ever. So it's like the the documentary was like 95% good. And then it got like 5% like police state right at the end. And then it's like, okay, I'm, I'm checking out at this point. But, you know, the, the, the issue is that, um, you know, people assume that things are going to basically stay the same. But the thing is, like, Facebook is just over a decade old. You know, it, it freaks me out now that I, I tell, like, younger employees and contractors and people and stuff that I was – I remember a world without YouTube in 2006. YouTube can't even get – YouTube is old enough to get a learner's permit to drive right now. And, um, you know, when I look at this, uh, I think Joe Rogan has a good way of saying it. He's just like, we don't know what's going on because when you look at all of human existence up to now, it was never this way. And right now we're going through all the growing pains of figuring out what this is. And I like what Dave, uh, Dave Chappelle said yesterday. He's like, I don't care what Twitter has to say. Twitter's not a real place. And it's like, people, people forget about that. It's really the matrix. It's like you've got the real world and then you've got the make-believe fun land. And, and it's, it's exactly that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, I was having a conversation with my father about it today. We were talking about Twitter and I'm like, it's a dopamine farm. Like it's worse than crack. People bitch about me smoking cigars and stuff, but they're going to go ahead and spend like five hours on Twitter. One of us is going to be less dumb by the end of the night and it's not going to be me. <laughs> See, I've talked about this a few times myself. Like, like I use Twitter. Number one, I use I, I had I've had a Twitter account for forever, but before I really started getting involved with all the podcast stuff, I really didn't use it because, like, it's not a real place. I, I didn't have a lot of use for it. Uh, I followed a few like uh, sports people that I paid attention to and listened to their shows and stuff, but I, I just really didn't use it. I, I didn't see the point. And then once I started getting involved with the Liberty community and the podcast and stuff like that, then I started getting into it. And the more I got into it, the more fun it was, but it's because of like the community that I interact with there, not necessarily because of what Twitter is. Uh, So like, like for me, Twitter's fun and it's a total shit show, but that's what I get out of it. Like I don't take it seriously. Uh, there are ideas that get thrown around and I like to dig into ideas and look at stuff and think about stuff and talk to people about stuff. And, and that that's entertaining, 
but it, it's not something that I dedicate a whole lot of brain so, power. Social, social media doesn't make people worse. It's like money. Money, being rich doesn't make you a bad person. Money shows you for who you are. And social media is that way. And, and I have, you know, my, my whole career has been social media since 2018 specifically. Um, now I'll even go back, say like 20, 2017, let's say 2017. And like, you know, I, I, I've allowed social media to make me a bad person. And I ultimately was like, this is showing a, you know, this is exposing some things about me. I don't like about myself in terms of how much time I'm spending on there, what I'm really getting out of it, whether I'm happier. And now I'm stricter about it. And my social media experience is great. Um, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, it, it just comes down to what it exposes about the person. And if what you see is something you don't like and you ignore it, then you're just feeding into it. Whereas if you know what you're getting out of it, um, you know, it could be great. Facebook's how I made great friends. It's how, it's how, it's how I'm sorry, social media. I'll say social media broadly. Social media is how I make great friends. Social media is how I built a brand. Social media is how I make money. Um, social media is how I, I get around and communicate with a lot of people. So, you know, I just had to become very restrictive about it. And I have to remind myself regularly that you know, like, this is not real life at the end of the day. Uh, I, I know somebody who, um, you know, has like 70,000 followers and she, you know, total smoke show, like beautiful. Like she's, she's posting the, you know, I call them the smart selfies because we care about how much brain power she is. And, um, you know, like she, she's just like, you, you think that life is perfect, but when you know her, like she is the most miserable person. And about a year ago, like really at the start of the pandemic, when like shit was getting wild, she quit, she quit that account and she left all the political circles she was in and stuff like that. And she moved out of DC to Texas and became a real estate agent. And now she covers up and she's not taking the um, I'm so brilliant selfies, but she's happier and her life is better. And a lot of people would say, oh, if I if only I had 70, 70,000 followers, it's like. What if I mean, it, it doesn't it only it only does so much like, you know. Uh, people make fun of me. They're like, oh, you only have like 3,000 followers on Twitter, a few thousand followers there. You're fucking nobody. I'm like, listen, you've got 100,000 people that like a tweet. I have hundreds of people that buy my shit and listen to me. So which of us is fucking winning? Because obviously not you, because you go and you cry and, and, and then you jerk off and wonder why you're miserable. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing relatively fine with my life. Right. I've got... I've got like 700 and a nice handful that on a daily basis, I get to have good conversations with or just talk about dumb shit and have fun. And when I, when I put my phone down and I, you know, I get off of Twitter, I smile because it was fun. And even the times when I do have disagreements with people, like I don't get mad about it. It doesn't hurt my feelings. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm, I have never at any point cried about anything from Twitter or Facebook or any of it because it's all fun. And like, I'm, I'm choosing to engage with people that are going to enrich my life. I would rather, I would rather have 700 followers and have fun interacting with them than have 70,000 and be miserable all the time. Like, I don't, I, don't. I, I love, yeah. Like I, I love it when I, when I meet awesome people, like I love doing my shows and everything. I it's, it's a beautiful part of my life. I don't want to sound like, Oh, you know, I do it because of the just cause of my miserable. I love it. It's the best part of my day. I love doing it. I love getting to come on and talk to people and do fun, entertaining, informative shit. But what I can definitely tell you is, you know, like the big emphasis for me on my show since the beginning has been like trying to reclaim your own happiness and your own sense of, you know, self-reliance and freedom and going after what you're passionate about in a way which balances with like the real demands of life. Like for every really positive yuppie episode I do, I do an episode about how difficult shit can be. And, uh, you know, I'm not 
in, in a position where it's like, you know, I, I made millions of dollars. I'm doing fantastic shit. I still work a nine to five, except the difference between me and like, um, you know, not, uh, like 90% of America is that I don't have debt. I have wealth. I'm growing it. I have multiple streams of income. I'm genuinely happy and I have a name presence uh, within a certain community that can support me. And, you know, the, the one thing that I started doing a couple months ago was I started uh, doing jujitsu after work. And I can tell you that there's nothing more humbling. There's nothing that will remind you how small you are than when you have like a 110 pound, like 19 year old high school dropout, like completely like arm bar you and make you question all your decisions leading up to this. At the end of it, he has to hug you because he thinks he hurt you and asks if you're okay. Like it's one of those situations where it's like, you want to be humbled. I I can find a way for you to be humbled very freaking fast. And, um, you, you know, it's, it's things like that. It's like, I wish people had more hobbies. Uh, I was thinking to myself today, it's like, you know, I wish there was just like, uh, you know, I was thinking my, like my pulp, my pure inner commie utopia. It's like, I wish I could just find a, a random piece of land somewhere and call it nice people stand. And the only requirement is that you're not an asshole and everyone here is just nice and you just leave each other alone. Wouldn't that be fucking nice? And and then my, my neighbor was loud and I thought about going over there and attacking them. So then I realized I would be excluded from my own island. But um, I mean, it's it's one of these things where it's like we like to blame things. It's like, oh, my life is bad because of Trump. Oh, my life is bad because of Biden. Oh, my life is bad because of this. Um, you know, it, it's it's bad because you allow it to be. Like it only shows you more of who you are. Um, I, I was uh, I, I had a really I, I had a really good friend and mentor. I still consider him a friend. We didn't have like an argument or falling out or something. We just kind of drifted away from each other who one, he taught me how to write properly. Uh, second, he gave me an opportunity to really grow my name recognition in libertarian politics when I was very young, like when I was 20, 21. And, uh, you know, he's somebody I really considered a good friend. And that one point he just had a complete shift in personality. And, uh, you know, he, he became a person who hated something more than he loved anything else. And I feel really bad. And I could probably reach out to this person and just ask them how they're doing. But I'm, I'm afraid they would see that as an attack. And it would just be like, no, I'm not setting you up for anything. I don't want to argue with you. I don't want to debate you. I just want to see how you were doing. Um, you know, the last time I spoke to him was about two years ago, like directly. Last time was probably two years ago. And it's because his cat needed surgery. And the first thing I did without having spoken to him for about seven months before that was I gave him some money and I sent the link around and, uh, you know, we were actually able to raise the money for the cat surgery. And he was just like, Oh man, brother, thank you. All this stuff. And I was like, anytime, man, let me know if you need anything. And then right after that, he goes on to start like attacking people who think a certain way or act a certain way. And I'm just like, you had something so generous come to you at a point where you were literally out of fucking options like the cat would be pushing daisies if it weren't for the kindness of people. But instead of focusing on that, you're focusing on the things that you hate. Why? And it's, it's moments like that where I look at it. I'm like, this shows a lot more insecurities about him that shows anything else about the things that he's complaining about. That's something about society. He should give up and sell drugs. <laughs> That's something about society in general that really, I don't know, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. I, I've been, I've been a very pessimistic and, and most definitely an unpleasant person at, at times in my life. And like over, over the last year, uh, especially this year, I've really been trying to focus on meeting the people who I engage with regularly. Uh, so like back in, I think it was March or April, I took my son to Birmingham, Alabama, for a Mises Institute event and got to meet Buck Johnson. You're like the worst fucking dad ever. I know, right? Who so, takes their kid to that? He had Was fun. WrestleMania not happening? Hey, he got a t-shirt and he got to meet, uh, he got to, he, he got to sit at the table with Buck and his wife and eat lunch and just like chit chat with them. And he was super <laughs> excited about that. But so he got to meet, uh, Buck, Tho Bishop, uh, Pete, Pete Quinones was there for whatever reason. Uh, Jeff, Jeff Dice show is my son's favorite. 
he likes the it's book a reviews. Kid, I got yeah, I got a weird kid. He like he likes the book reviews, and uh, and so Jeff was like Jeff was there, and I was like that's that's Jeff Dice. Like you should you should go say hi to him. He's like oh no no, there's no way I can do that. I, I can't I can't go talk to him. I'm like for real, dude. Just go walk up to him and talk to him. Just tell him that that you like his show, and he will definitely talk to you. And he wouldn't do it. He freaked out and went and sat back down to the table. But like he got to meet all these people, and then I took my wife. We went to the Pennsylvania Libertarian uh, State Convention and went to the uh, the Mises Caucus events there and got to meet Scott Horton and Shane Hazel and all kinds of people. Uh, my wife like completely big time me and her and Dave Smith and David fight went out to smoke a cigarette and like just abandoned me to <laughs> talk to Scott Horton for 20 minutes. Uh, and, but, and then last weekend we went down to Texas to the, to the renegade university thing at Buck's place and got to like hang out with all these awesome people. Uh, like that's been something that I've really tried to make a deliberate focus on is going and meeting the people that we engage with and like, not just being Twitter besties, but like actually giving them a hug and saying hi and hanging out in person because like as society seems to drift more in the direction of people always being mad about something, people always trying to find the things that they're miserable about and, and why life is bad and all the black pills. I want to meet people and, and I want to make like real personal connections and have fun with everything that we're doing because if we're not doing that what's the point yeah um a struggle that i have had personally more so since i moved here than really ever before is um you know i'm and this isn't a woe is me thing like i go to work and i i really get along with all my coworkers and stuff uh, you know, I, I podcast and work and I have clients like I'm very social, like I've got enough social interaction in my life. But the thing is, like, I, I still have a I still struggle with loneliness. Uh, you know, my fiance still currently works in Maryland right now. We're planning a wedding and long story short, she's not going to be here for a while, like a long while. And then, you know, my entire social network is back in Virginia and, uh, you know, I, I've tried to go out and do more things and meet more people outside of the things that I already have. And that's one thing I've really benefited from jujitsu. But like, you know, somebody was like, oh, you need to go out and make more friends. And I'm like, you know, yeah, I, I want to go out and do more things. I want to feel that type of interaction with people. But I don't think I need more friends because like I, I, I'm, I'm old enough now where it's like I think there was a study that said that every person really only has like between three to five good close friends. And honestly, I'm not going to name who they are because I want everyone to fight for that top five. But like, really, it, it's true. Like, I don't really want to go out and meet new people. I just miss my close friends already because it just so happened that, you know, a lot of them are people I, I grew up with and knew for many years. So the problem with me is the fact that I, you know, now and it was really weird. I went back to Virginia a few months ago. Maybe this is a sign of adulthood. It's realizing that people can go on and live their lives and plan things without you. And that's what really hit me. And I didn't take it personally. That's how it is. It's a subconscious thing. People move on and they should. But it, it was one of those things where it's just like, you know, it, it makes me appreciate those relationships more. And the more I focus on maintaining those and still keeping in touch with people at the same time doing what's healthy, which is going out, meeting new people, doing new things, gaining more experiences, getting out there, talking to strangers and stuff. Or in Jiu-Jitsu's case, going out there and getting choked by strangers. It's one of those situations where it's like I had to pull off from the things where I found relative familiarity and safety and comfort in order to sometimes be uncomfortable, but understand why which is the fact that, yeah, I feel lonely, but why is it? It's because I'm not actively doing something right now to keep those, those things going. And that when I do that, I feel immediately better. You know, it, it's something that I see with a lot of people. Loneliness is a killer. It really is. And I've seen this with, uh, you know, with a guy who was a radio host. He's like, you know, Remzo, um, I talk to tens of thousands of people every day, but I don't know if I have a person I can call at night if I'm not feeling well. And that 
that is a sad thing to fucking say. And, uh, you know, now what that person does is that person goes out and runs. That person goes to the gym more. And that person, um, I don't know whether it was like a bowling league or something. They just need to do something. They need to pull themselves out of everything that they were feeling and be so focused on something. That's why I'm so happy that sports are back. I never appreciated that type of stuff until it was taken away uh, during the pandemic um, because of COVID. Um, you know, it, it's those things where it's like, just pull yourself out and do something meaningless just for the sake of having fun. Especially if you could do it with other people in person, in daylight or something like that. Uh, last week I talked to Alan Mosley about, and we just talked about sports. We talked about rivalries. And he looks like, like a Southern weird Al. I love Alan. <laughs> so we, t- we just talked sports and it was, he's like, after we got done, he said, you know, there's going to be people that absolutely hate this conversation. He said, and that's their loss. Like, like, and that, it really is. Like we really do. I, I play, uh, my wife calls it old man basketball and my kids call me RoboCop because I am, uh, I, I wear elbow pads and knee braces and ankle braces. Like I, I look full on RoboCop when I play, you should but give up I'm and also, sell drugs. <laughs> I'm also getting kind of old and, and banged up. Uh, it makes you feel better. I had to go to the chiropractor two days in a row this week. And you're young. I'm 26 and I had to go. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. But so, so we do old man basketball and it's fun. Like none of us are, you know, we're, we're not breaking any world records for shooting percentages or anything like that. And we get mad at each other and push each other around. And then we get, and you know, when we get done, we talk shit and we hug and, and have fun. And, and, and we did go for a while where we didn't get to do that. And I, I pretend that I didn't miss it, that I, I don't need basketball, but I haven't played in a while just because work stuff has been crazy and it's really pissed me off these last two weeks because I've had opportunities that I might've gotten to play. And then I didn't get to play because either we had to cancel for something or I had something come up. And it's like, I feel like a kid again, like looking forward to that weekly basketball game. Dude, I, I, everything I do now, everything revolves around jujitsu and I'm not like, I'm not trying to be like the world's biggest badass. I'm not trying to be John Wick. I'm not trying to compete. I do it because that is where I'm at my most happy. I'm still a beginner. I really fucking suck, but I love it. And everything I do now, now focuses on that. Not because I'm trying to do so many amazing things, but because I had to align where am I most happy? And I am so happy there. So everything that had to be a priority for me, I had to get selfish with it because I also know that if I don't do that, I am almost more mad at myself than otherwise. And, and, you know, it's also one of those things where it's like, you know, I think people should do difficult things um, simply because it, it, you know, not only is it humbling, but it puts a lot of things in perspective. I found that I get, uh, I don't know about you, but I get like email rage, like I'll see an email from somebody and immediately the first thought I think of is murder. I don't even know what's in the body of the email, but since I started doing jujitsu, um, you know, I get my ass kicked and it's incredibly hard. And you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's, it could be frustrating, but it's so fucking difficult that it makes everything else I do easier. And it wasn't just work. Uh, you know, I talk less and my fiance likes that. Uh, on calls because now I just listen. Um, I don't overreact as much and maybe it's just because I'm so tired, but you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more intentional with things. So it's one of those things where it's like, whether you're going to go run or whether you're building a hobby, I think physical is, is better because physical is going to want what's good for you. But it's also one of those things where it's like, you're working a part of yourself that you wouldn't probably work throughout the day if you're sitting in an office or something. It's like, you know, for a lot of people, this is what bothered me. There's a survey done like 2018 that talked about like millennial hobbies and one of the top millennial hobbies, like number one for like two, three years running was like Netflixing. And it's like, if you consider Netflix, watching Netflix, a fucking hobby, like you're, you're, you're in the matrix. You're fucking dead already. As far as I'm concerned. Yeah. That's, that's I've, I've talked about this a little bit. That's something that since I started getting into more of the podcast stuff, I've really, 
I don't do some of the things that I might have considered hobbies at one time. Like I don't play video games at all anymore. I don't I don't think I've I don't think I've actually played video games aside from like a couple times uh doing a like a Fortnite round with my son. I don't think I've played video games in at least two years. Uh I don't I'm I'm in the same boat because like everything was just work. I don't really watch a lot of Netflix and stuff. Like I have I have several shows that I watch, but usually the stuff that I watch is like zone out, watch something dumb or watch something that's really crazy. Or like I'll watch horror movies or uh, my son and I do watch a lot of uh, like comic related stuff together and, and stuff like that. But like, I don't have any shows that I'm just like super dedicated to like I used to be. Do you uh, watch The Witcher? I did. I like. I am so. When that shit comes on in a couple months, nobody better fucking talk to me because I'm not doing anything. I'll call out for work until I am done watching that season. I've waited too fucking long. I did really enjoy the the first season of that, and and there are things like that that like there, uh, but a lot of them I find are things that I get into with either with my wife or with my son. Like it's stuff that is kind of deliberate. Um, I don't have a lot of just like things that I really uh, religiously. It's not, it's not just in stuff. It's communal stuff now. Right. And, it, and it's not, it's not like I lost anything by that. In fact, I feel like, I feel like I get to do that stuff with my son. I get to do that stuff with my wife. I get to do that stuff with, you know, the Liberty community with all of the, podcasts and stuff and it's stuff that like i don't need as much of that uh alone time with that thing that's mine because i, th- I guess i've kind of grown out of that you know and and i think we all i don't know maybe not we all but i think as we mature and especially with the way the world is kind of gone uh you start to see value you know like you were talking about having a handful of close friends. I know who those are. Like I know who I could call right now. If I needed something, I know who I could call and they would be there. And then, you know, that's, you need to have those like meaningful connections. And and the more you start to find those and build those, the less you really care about some of that other stuff that and, you know, and I seems think important what... once upon a time. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, everything has been going back to the source of your own power and your own choices. That's been a big buzz buzz phrase recently I've seen. And it's like, you're going to, you're going to get more value out of things that seem trivial because that's one, it's a very deliberate personal choice, but you then see the immediate gratification that comes from it. You know, that's why when people take those small victories they, they feel amazing, but then they don't feel like talking about it because they think, oh, well, I haven't done something fantastic or oh, I'm not bitching about something else online. And, and that's my criticism of libertarians right now. It's that they don't want to change. They want to be victims. I think the best advocates for libertarianism are some of the people that I think libertarians host, hate most right now. One, one of them, you know, is Jason Stapleton. And, you know, Jason has been somebody I've looked up to since I was 19. That's how far back it goes since I was 19. In fact, Jason was one of the first people to hire me as a copywriter when I was in college. That's how fucking old I am now. But, you know, you've got him and then you've got Grant Cardone, who's someone I'm a big fan of. And then you've got Andrew Tate, Cobra Tate, kickboxing James Bond motherfucker from Europe. And it's like these people, yeah, they, they, they live like these very gaudy in-your-face lives. But what do they always say? It's not about what I'm, what I'm trying to project on you. It comes down to just a few things. You can't take care of anybody if you didn't take care of yourself first. And that's not a selfish thing. It's just making sure that you've got the foundation so that when other people need a life raft, you're not going to drown with them as you go to save them. And it's, and it's one of those things. And, you know, like I, I had phases where I was like super popular and stuff like that. Uh, you know, online and in some areas of politics and media. But let me tell you, that shit lives and dies in seconds. And then you're stuck with yourself the rest of the time. And that's what you do with that, 
that means it. You know, what, what always, uh, you know, the, it, it, I find it kind of insulting, but it is impressive in a way where I'll meet these people who became like super famous and shot up overnight. And I knew them when they were just like Joe on the street. And then when, you know, something goes bad or something doesn't go right or they stop getting that immediate gratification because somebody's, you know, because the crowd is looking at somebody else, then what they do is they just basically fucking disappear. And then they reach out to me because I was one of the few nice people that actually genuinely likes them. And then they're like, you know, you never had that, but you keep going and you're putting out good shit and I see you doing great things. It's like, because that never fucking mattered to me. I do awesome shit because I want to do it. You think I wrote two books because I had fucking advanced payments? No, motherfucker. I was, I was unemployed. <laughs> I wrote my first book when I was on shift at a dispatch office known as a closet as a mall cop uh, working, working first shift. And then my, I wrote my second book when I was also working at GameStop. And it's like, you know, I did awesome shit because no one else is going to do awesome shit for me. And it's just like, you know, it's, it's a choice. I spent money on that stuff that I I didn't have the money to spend it on. So I got extra jobs and shit like that. I'm not trying to make myself sound awesome. I'm just saying that it was a very deliberate and very difficult choice to do it. I remember uh, I was, I was a mall cop on St. Patrick's day at one point and I had to protect a stage at night after all the drunk white women went home and they told me you can sit in your car as long as your car is facing um, the, the, uh, the stage, because it was all blocked off to you. Like you had to put some effort in, but you could sit in your car because it would be freezing and you needed to watch the stage uh, because there was some equipment on there. Um, I remember bringing my laptop with me and I wrote, because I also couldn't afford Microsoft office at the time. I wrote, um, like five chapters of my first book in the notes feature on my Mac, because I also didn't have internet to get access to Google docs. Like I wrote that from like 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. And I can report that the stage was safe and now this shit got stolen. And then I left at five when I got replaced. But it got to the point where it's like, I'm going to do this for me. And if it succeeds, it succeeds. If not, I still did it. And the book came on to be a bestseller anyway. So, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's just like, you know, you, you got, you got to do the stuff that makes you happy. And it's like, you know, I, my, my second book, which is my favorite book, how to succeed in politics and our forms of devil worship, which everyone should buy. Um, sales fucking sucked. Sales have never met what I consider decent and even not comparing it to my first book, the sales just didn't happen, but I love that book. And I'm glad I wrote that book and I got a lot of opportunities because of that book. And everyone I know that's read that book loved that book. So even though they didn't reach the same levels as the other one, and it didn't even really meet my expectations for what I thought it should be all right wise, I'm still glad I did it. I don't ever regret doing it. So, because I mean, no, no one can ever take that away from me. And, uh, you know, like with Second Brick Comics, for example, Mark and I started that amidst the pandemic. I got 10% pay cut from work and I was forced to work from home the full time. And Mark was furloughed and that motherfucker went to Mexico. And then we were like, you know, what we're going to do. We're going to do a podcast about something that we have no relation to. We don't know people. We have no hookups. We have no name recognition. Let's do like a 30 hour long show talking about comic book from 1988 from a guy you don't know and talk about comic shit once a week. And we're just like, fuck it, let's do it. And now it's become, you know, a whole thing and it's great. And uh, it, it just comes down to like, um, if you do what you are happy doing because you love doing it, good things will come. Good things will not come because you're doing it because of that only with that expectation, because you will burn out immediately. I have failed at more projects and shit than I've ever succeeded at. And, you know, it just comes down to that. It's like, if you're not trying to feed your passion, it will die. That's, that's just it. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm so sick of seeing sad people. Um, it, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, that, that, that's a very deliberate choice. And, uh, you know, when I see people bitching about it online, you know, 
it's like I, I've learned to stay away from talk, getting into conversations and stuff, especially with women that have mental health advocate in their Twitter bio. Stay away from those people. They're just they, they're gonna, they're not, they're, you're going to have a bad day. Something something interesting, and then we'll kind of close on uh, wrap up. I left a job making close to ninety thousand dollars a year uh, a number of years ago. Uh, to go work making $11 an hour. Not an easy transition to make, uh, but I was infinitely happier with my $11 an hour job than I ever was in that like really good high. I was a regional project manager and had six facilities under me and travel all the time and oversaw like multi-million dollar projects and stuff like that. And and I dreaded getting up every morning and I couldn't wait to get home and it was horrible. And I left that to go make $11 an hour hanging out with a bunch of dudes in a warehouse, pushing, you know, driving fork trucks around and, and loading shit on trailers. And I, it was fun. Like I would get inside of old concrete mixers and like spray them out and clean them out to, to get different product in and like it was dirty and it was nasty and there was no fanfare or glory about it whatsoever. And I loved it. And those, like those people were my family. Um, oh, dude, I make fun of GameStop a lot, but I could tell you, I, I had more fun and I was treated better at GameStop making seven twenty five an hour than 99% of the places I've ever worked at. That's that's a genuine that i i love gamestop really i think it's going to go out of business and it probably should but gamestop never gamestop never did me wrong that's the weird thing about it finding a place and the people that that connect to you like spiritually and the you know where you are you're actually happy that's way more important than any of the other bullshit that people seem to think are uh, what's going to be important in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Give all your plugs and we'll call it a wrap. Go buy my shit. Go, go listen to my stuff and be better. Go ahead and find everything you need to know and more. Just follow me across the internet. Hey, Remso, H-E-Y-R-E-M-S-O. I've got a newsletter that I do regularly. It's remso.substack.com. And you can check out my shows uh, on the run with Remso W. Martinez every Monday and Thursday. And the Second Brick Comics podcast every Wednesday. Thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. 